Hey, and welcome to the first episode of Noteworthy. This is a very special Black History Month edition celebrating black music professionals who helped pave the way for future generations. So, So, let's let's get get started. She acts like I never said Noteworthians before, but I like that for you guys. Yes. (laughs) But hey, Noteworthians, and welcome to episode one. Woo! Woo! (laughs) Oh my God. I feel, (laughs) Christine, don't you feel like this is taking so long? (laughs) Way too long. Oh Oh my my God, God. I feel so bad because we like hyped this thing up like hecka long ago. I'm Mm going to be like freaking inputting... Uh, what is it called when you in inputting other words for cuss words? Because I ain't trying to be cussing <laughs> on here like that. I might slip up once or twice, but oh well, we're only human, right? You got this. I believe in you. <laughs> but no, it's been a really long process. And the thing is, like, I knew that it would be a long process, but we just didn't know it was going to be that long. Yeah, for real. <laughs> but, you know, life happens, so. Word. It's cool. It's cool. Like, I ended up. I was I got put in a new position at work, so my time frame was like zero available time frame. Christine, of course, doing all her awesome like humanitarian freaking <laughs> awesomeness, so she had zero times available. But we still sent each other text messages yes. saying we gotta let our people know we coming. Yep, we coming. So <laughs> we're here because we really, really, really wanted to do an episode and put it out there at least have it to you guys by the very last day of February yes because what better episode to start than something for us yes because we if you guys haven't guessed it yet or figured out we are two black african-american women Mm -hmm. I am Nigerian Um, my mama and daddy are from Nigeria and my wonderful friend Christine. I'm Cape Verdean American. My family is from Cape Verde. I unfortunately am the only one that has never visited, but I will get there. <laughs> I will get there. <laughs> so we just wanted to like of course since we are in Black History Month, twenty eight days and we have hashtag twenty eight days of everything. Yes. Why not on this ending just give you guys a little like history knowledge on some of the artists who have paved a uh, sort of foundation and started amazing things that paved the way for future generations and current generations that we are. Absolutely. But first, but just a reminder of who we are. I'm Christine. I am co-host and main editor of Noteworthy. Hey, and I'm Shelly, co-host researcher, and social media guru of Unnoteworthy. Hey! <laughs> Here on Noteworthy, and like we said, this is a very, very special episode. Yes. We are recording in honor of Black History Month. Black History! So, the two of us together chose four people to tell their stories. And, you know, we're going to let you, our listeners, hear how their stories have labeled them as such game changers in the field. Now, I'm going to start with Billie Holiday. She was born in April of 1915. She died in July of 1959. She's an American jazz singer. She's a great one. If you haven't heard of her, maybe you've heard of this song, Strange Fruit. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I felt like that was needed. I'm just saying. Oh, well, wait, real quick, Christine. By the way, we will definitely be posting everyone we're talking about. Oh yes, on our social media oh, yes. page. And you later definitely on. should probably, most likely, very much so listen to them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But yeah, back to Christine. Back to me. Yeah. Okay. So Billie Holiday. She's a jazz singer. She's one of the first black women to work with a white orchestra. During that time, during the 1930s, there was a lot of segregation. There was a lot of racism that go, that went on, and she dealt with a lot of that. 
Um, she was also one of the first black women. She was the first black woman to be employed full time to tour in the South during segregation. And, you know, the, the band that she toured with had a white band leader. So that was just like uncalled for. There were so many situations where she wasn't allowed to be in certain spaces. And, you know, a lot of the fans of the band that she played with or, you know, a lot of the fans of just the general white musicians that were there were not okay with her performing at all. And, you know, it sucked, but she made it through. Um, she also toured with Count Basie and Artie Shaw. She recorded with and she recorded and performed a song called Strange Fruit. And this song was based off of a poem that was about lynchings. And the poem was written by a Jewish school teacher. You know, like, it's crazy how a Jewish school teacher would be writing about lynchings at that time. Um, the teacher's name, actually, I'm going to give credit to her, is um, Abel Mirapal. And, you know, Billy talked about the song, and she said that the imagery of the song, the imagery that it created for her, reminded her of her dad's death, which is, you know, it's... It's so, when you think about it, and you think about a song, you think about a poem, and it reminds you of something that maybe so, that's so traumatic, especially during that time. Like, that's crazy. And she paved the way for that um, in talking about that. And I love her so much. <laughs> All right, it's my go. So the person I chose, some of you may be familiar with because of all the folklore behind him. But the person I chose is none other than the Crossroads Kings himself, Robert Leroy Johnson. Robert Leroy Johnson was born May 8th, 1911, and died August 16th, 1938. He was an American blues singer, songwriter, and musician. His landmark recordings in 1936 and 1937 display a combination of singing, guitar skills, and songwriting talent that has influenced later generations of musicians even till the same day. People are still looking at his works and creating and finding new ways to, to put their own spin and make themselves better at, with how they are. Now, the thing about Johnson, Johnson's poorly documented life and death at the age of 27 has is what gave rise to the folklore of the crossroads and even, for instance, something that I'll mention later on towards the end. Now, before I get to the legend, let me spit known facts first. An important aspect of Johnson's singing was his use of microtonality. Microtonal music or microtonality is the use in music of microtones, intervals smaller than a semitone, also called micro intervals. It, it may also be extended to include any music using intervals not found in the customary Western tuning of 12 equal intervals per octave. There's a whole lot more on that, but thank you, Senpai, because I only know that because of you. <laughs> Um, but these subtle inflections of pitch help explain why his singing conveys such powerful emotion. Eric Clapton described Johnson's music as the most powerful cry that he thinks you can find in the human voice. Now, the one thing, and anybody can tell you when it comes to me, I absolutely, the one thing you can find on my phone or playing in my car, any artists who literally, like, when they're singing, just puts chills on your skin because they're actual the way they're singing they're invoking and and basically letting you into everything they're feeling with just the simple melody coming from their mouth that's something that i completely love but back onto my freaking <laughs> back onto uh what i was talking about um besides his voice johnson is also known for using the guitar as basically another vocalist on his songs literally he would make his guitar sing like um uh the, the technique was later perfected by bb king and his guitar that he named of course lucille johnson mastered the guitar being considered today one of the all-time greatest on the instrument by far his approach was complex and musically advanced beyond what at that time people knew guitar to be especially for somebody who they thought what's the term I'm looking for? They thought that he picked up, he actually did, he picked up music, tones, songs, melodies so quickly. And that is another thing that made it so easy to 
make him into a folklore. Now, from 1932 until 1938, um, Johnson moved frequently between the cities of Memphis and Helena and the smaller towns of Mississippi and everywhere along that region up until Arkansas. Um, now, when Johnson arrived in new towns, he would play from for tips on street corners, and he never actually used his complete full name or real name. He would change up. He had about like eight different aliases because he would have a lot of conquests with women, and none would know about the other. But that sort of attributed to his demise. Now, when Johnson would go from town to town picking up all these random gigs and, and performing on street corners, he didn't focus on his own dark and complex original compositions that he's known for today, but instead he pleased audiences by performing well-known pop standards of that current time frame, and it wasn't necessarily always blues. Now, with an ability to pick up tunes and, and f at first hearing, he had no trouble giving his audiences what they wanted. Now, this is where the legend starts to kick in. According to legend, as a young man living on a plantation in rural Mississippi, Johnson had a tremendous desire to become a great blues musician. He was instructed to take his guitar to a crossroad near Dockery Plantation at midnight. There, he was met by a large black man, who is noted to be the devil, who took the guitar and tuned it. The devil played a few songs and then returned the guitar to Johnson, giving him mastery of the instrument in an instant. This was a deal with the devil marrying the legend of Faust. In, ex in exchange for his soul, Johnson was able to create the blues for which he became famous. This legend was developed and chronicled over time by a few people, including Elijah Wald, who says he sees the legend as largely dating from Johnson's rediscovery by white fans more than two decades after his death. And Sonhouse once told the story to Pete Wielding as an explanation of Johnson's astonishingly rapid mastery of the guitar. Basically, the folklore came around because around that time frame, it was, well, what black man could actually pick up such a talent so quickly that something something so metaphysical had to have happened for him to be that well well like known when it came to the guitar now there are like i said a few versions of this folklore including one that has the meeting happening in a graveyard and not in the crossroads because johnson liked to practice his guitar in the graveyard at night because it was quiet and no one would disturb him some say it wasn't the devil from Christian belief, but in fact, the African trickster god Legba because he himself was associated with the crossroads. There's just so many different stories when it comes to him. Like, literally, even from the beginning of his life to his death, nobody truly knows what happened. Now, interesting factoid and last factoid when it comes to him, the exact location of Johnson's grave is not known at all. Three different markers have been erected at possible sites in church cemeteries all outside of Greenwood. But even his death on August 16, 1938, at the age of 27, is still unknown. Several different accounts have described the events preceding his death. Johnson had been playing a few weeks at a country dance. And according to one theory, Johnson was murdered by a jealous husband of a woman with whom he had flirted. But in another one, he was poisoned from a bottle handed to him by a married woman he met on, at a dance on that very same night. Now, there's one musicologist who claims to have tracked down the man who murdered Johnson, but that guy isn't actually giving out a name of who that person is. So literally, this, this man's life isn't known. Like, it's... Like, we have seen him pop up in things like Supernatural episodes where they um, did a quick little thing with hound dogs when it came to him. Hell dogs, not hound dogs. Sorry, Elvis. Um, but even in, like, Scooby-Doo, and in, in this folklore has appeared in so many random movies and shows, and this talented man, we have no idea about the large majority of his life, all we know is that he was very talented, a ladies' man, because what <laughs> one thing that is in common is that it was because of a woman that he died. <laughs> um, but 
he is definitely one noteworthy man who, if I were you, I'd look way more into because his life and death is truly an astonishing read. <laughs> this is extremely long-winded, but this guy is completely amazing, and I urge you guys to just keep looking into this one because, man, that's <laughs> like it's freaking amazing. Yeah, Shelly, that's definitely some crazy stuff. A graveyard? Damn. Okay. <laughs> so we're just going to move right on along and talk about one of my faves, Anita Baker. She's 61 years old, still alive and kicking and doing her thing. I love me some Anita. All right, go ahead. Go ahead. Let's she started off uh, with music uh, in the 70s in a band called Chapter 8. She had her first solo album in um, 83 called The Songstress. And her second uh, album, which is my personal fave, Rapture, uh, this album brought her to the Billboard charts for the first time at number 8. Like, what? That is amazing. Sweet Love, that was the song. Um, that was a song that topped the charts. Well, it didn't top the charts. It got to number eight. But eight is a pretty, <laughs> eight it's is a pretty, it's eight is something. It's better it's than nothing. Ten. It's top ten. Definitely. Um, she also won two Grammys back in um, 87. And, you know, this is, this is Anita Baker. Like, of course she won Grammys. What you mean? Um, all right. So she was popular for her romantic ballads and she brought a lot of soul to her song. And, um, you know, this is a thing that I like to mention. My roommate swears that they're related because his last name is Baker Bone and uh, her last name is Baker and he's just delusional. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so Anita incorporated more and more jazz elements into her albums as they progressed. She was featured on the billboards again for the album Giving You the Best That I Got. And that also expanded her popularity, which led to her selling over a million copies of the album compositions. She later appeared on Frank Sinatra's duet album and then returned even later after that to the charts also yet again with the album Rhythm of Love. After that, she took a hiatus, you know, of course after touring and things, from 1994 to 2000. You know, releasing another album and going on tour between then and now, she's had many a notable achievement, including being awarded an honorary doctorate from Berkeley School of Music. She also has been touring, she's been appearing on shows, releasing beautiful singles, until, you know, 2017 when she officially retired. But, you know, you can't stop Anita. Obviously, she's caught up in the rapture of all this music because she came out of retirement just last year. And that's Anita. Christine, you know, I'm like kind of sort of mad because I was going to do Anita. And then she's like, I want to do Anita. And I just looked at her with full-on betrayal eyes. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sorry that I love Anita Baker. He's my favorite. And then I started singing Anita Baker songs for, like, the rest of the night. Like, I swear, if I hear Caught Up in the Rapture, you one more time. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but that was freaking awesome. There was something I didn't know about Anita that definitely just found out. So that's pretty awesome. Um... But my second one I'm going to be doing, in place of me wanting to do Anita Baker, of course, Miss Big Mama Thornton is my number two. So, blues legend Willie Mae Thornton, or better known as Big Mama Thornton, was a singer-songwriter who was born in Arrington, Alabama on December 11th? Yeah, December 11th, 1926. She was exposed to music at a young age in the church where her father was a minister and grew up singing in its choir. Yes, loud. <laughs> <laughs> That's just how it was back then, though. Like, if you notice a lot, actually, while doing research, I realized that a lot of the people I chose, one, they're like this almost within the kind of same genre of music. I didn't mean for that to happen. It just did. But they also all came from a church background because then that religion was very big back then. But 
back to your regular scheduled program. Um, so she was exposed to music at a young age in a church where her father was a minister, and she grew up singing in its choir. Her style was heavily influenced by gospel music. She was given her nickname Big Mama by Frank Schiffman, the manager of Harlem's Apollo Theater, because of her strong voice, size, and personality. She dressed in men's clothing and drank so heavily throughout her whole entire adult life. Damn, how did her kidney survive? Mm, that's going to be at the <laughs> end. Because, you know, unfortunately back then, like, for it was literally, there was a lot of uh, drinking and alcohol. But nowadays. Is that like around prohibition? Mm, I actually don't know. That's a whole nother uh, history lesson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's focus on the music yeah. side. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she's quoted as saying, when I was coming up listening to Bessie Smith and all, they sung from their heart and soul and expressed themselves. That's why when I do a song by Jimmy Reed or somebody, I have my own singing of it because I don't want to be Jimmy Reed. I want to be me. I like to put myself into whatever I'm doing so I can feel it. My singing comes from my experience, my own experience. I never had no one teach me nothing. I never went to school for music or nothing. I taught myself to sing and to blow harmonica and even to play the drums by watching other people. I can't read music, but I know what I'm singing. I don't sing like nobody but myself. I'm like, <laughs> yo. Better get it. <laughs> so, yo, I read that and I like, woo. Like, it, it's just, ooh, it's like just the way she spoke gave you shivers. Now imagine how powerful her voice was when she was invoking it in song. She, she was known for her powerful voice and sexually explicit lyrics. Thornton was the original performer of the hit song Hound Dog. And you know Hound Dog. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Like, yeah, no, but yeah. it's it's really commonly associated with Elvis Presley, and you realize from my other, uh, the other ones I'm going to be bringing up, Elvis Presley's name pops in quite a lot because unfortunately this was the time frame where black artists with popular songs were being quote unquote covered by uh, more successful white artists. Well, that's a whole nother, a whole nother issue. And also another one of her songs, Ball and Chained, was covered by none other than Miss Janis Joplin. Thornton achieved recognition for her work when white artists covered it. But funny enough, when Thornton originally recorded her song, Ball and Chain, for Bone T Records in the like early 1960s, and then the, the label chose not to release the song, mind you but they still held the copyright over the song, which meant that when Miss Thornton missed out on publishing royalties when Janis Joplin recorded the song later in the decade, she had, like, literally, she was the originator of the song, but she couldn't even get any recognition for any, uh, what's the term I'm looking for, funds from it. She, she didn't, didn't get receive any royalties. any royalties at all from that song. That sucks. Yeah. It, especially since most people who know Janis Joplin, everybody, like, her, she, her, she's a well-known artist, and she ended up with the royalties from this. I'm just saying, just sharing, sharing's caring. But continued on, like, just like I mentioned e earlier, scholars have praised Thornton for subverting traditional roles of African-American women. She added a female voice to a field that was dominated by white males, and her strong personality transgressed stereotypes of what an African-American woman should be. This transgression was integral part of her performance and stage persona. Elvis Presley and John, Janis Joplin admired her unique style of singing and incorporated elements of it in their own personal works. Her vocal sound and style of de delivery are key parts of her style and are recognizable, like, literally. You would, if you listen to these artists, you can understand that they grabbed some, what's the term I'm looking for again? Like bits and pieces of her yeah, style? They, yeah, exactly. They, they repped off of it, basically. 
Um, All they need to do now is, you know, give her credit. <laughs> exactly. I guess that's a little too hard to do, but. <laughs> but in that time frame, that's just and that's just how that's it was. That's just how like, it was. Yeah. Exactly. Nowadays, people can't get away with that. Yeah. Uh, for instance, what happened with uh, uh, blurred lines? Everybody knows what happened with that one. Mm-hmm. But once again, <laughs> whole other issue. <laughs> um, but. Thornton subsequently received greater recognition for her popular songs, but she is still underappreciated for her influence on blues, rock and roll, and soul music. Thornton's music was also influential in shaping American popular music. The lack of appreciation she received for Hound Dog and Ball and Chain as they became popular hits is representative of the lack of recognition she received during her career as a whole. Many critics argue that Thornton's lack of recognition in the music industry is a reflection of an era of racial segregation in the United States, both physically and in the music industry. And honestly, I completely agree. But there are some scholars who suggest that Thornton's lack of access to broader audiences, both white and black, may have been a barrier to her commercial success as both a vocalist and a composer. Unfortunately, she died at the age of 57 in Los Angeles, California on July 25th in 1984 of a heart attack. Now, it's said that it was because of her heavy drinking that that contributed to the illnesses which helped lead up to her heart attack. That's a very nice piece to write. Exactly. But also in 1984, on a positive note, Thornton was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. Her song Ball and Chain appears in the Rock and Hall, <laughs> the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame list of 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. And that is Miss Thornton. Go, Big Mama Thornton! <laughs> and now we're moving on. All you rock and roll fans, we're going to talk about Chuck Berry. He was born October 18th, 1926. He's an American singer songwriter, and some would say, a pioneer of rock and roll. Why? Why is he a pioneer of rock and roll? Why do people say that? Oh, well, you don't tell me. Damn, why are you asking so many questions? You know? <laughs> Shoot. My bad. Can I just, sister just sit down I'm, in the chair I'm, and listen to I'm story <laughs> time? I like stories. Story time. Okay. Well, you know, I will tell you one thing. I learned about, uh, before I tell you why he's a pioneer of rock and roll, um, I learned about uh, Chuck Berry when I was first learning how to play guitar many, many years ago. Um, You know, that just makes me feel old. But anyway, he's one of the first people besides Eric Clapton that I learned about when I was learning techniques. And um, I, I was very, very inspired by him. He really paved the way for rock and roll. And the way that he fine tuned aspects of rhythm and blues that's displayed in rock is like especially in his songs is amazing like you would never think to combine the two genres especially if you listen to r&b now and rock now like where would you think to fit those things like those elements in there i mean i guess now it would be a little bit different because society changed and music's music tastes changed but he started all of it. He wrote about consumerism and his life as a teen. Um, throughout his life, he was in and out of jail for, you know, a few, like, minor things that really aren't that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. But um, he became a really huge influence on the genre, as I've said before. He's one of the first musicians to be inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 86, when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame first started. He wrote songs such as Johnny Be Good and Maybelline, and he defined his music with showmanship and sweet, sweet riffs. So, there you have it. There's Chuck Berry. I do love me some Johnny Be Good, though. I mean, granted, I don't know how many more besides the main ones I do know, but, <laughs> yeah. That's fine, as long as you know something. <laughs> Go. I mean, my turn again. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Like, literally, that's one of my favorite songs. But my number three pick for our special edition podcast is none other than Muddy Waters. But his birth name is McKinley Morganfield. He was born April 4th, 1913. 
who died April 30th, 1983. I'm sorry, now, but I have to say and interrupt very slightly. When I heard you say Muddy Waters, I heard Drake in my head say, I said my, wadi, my Muddy Waters. It's funny because when I was researching tape, Muddy Waters, <laughs> I only typed in Muddy Waters and, and Drake had popped I'm up. Sorry, I'm sorry. I was a like, that's not the Muddy Waters I was looking for. I didn't know that Drake song. But <laughs> anyway, back to what I was saying. Um, McKinley Morganfield, professionally known as Muddy Waters, was an American blues singer-songwriter and musician who is often cited as the father of modern Chicago blues, an important figure on the post-war blues scene. His grandmother, Stella Grant, raised him after his mother died shortly after his birth. She gave him the nickname Muddy at an early age because he loved to play in the muddy water of a nearby creek called Deer Creek. Waters was added years later as he began to play harmonica and perform locally in his early teens. Now, Waters grew up on Stovall Plantation near Clarksdale, Mississippi. He had his first introduction to music in church. And this is what I was mentioning earlier, Christine, where I've noticed that a lot of mine all got a lot of their influence from growing up in some type of church mm-hmm. and being a part of the church's choir. Mm-hmm. But he had his first introduction, like I said, to music in his church. He said, and I quote, I used to belong to the church. I was a good Baptist singing in the church. So I got all of my good moaning and trembling going on for me right out of church. He recalled by the time he was 17, he had purchased his first guitar. He said, I sold the last horse that we had, made about $15 for him, gave my grandmother $7.50. I kept $7.50 and paid about $2.50 for that guitar. Mm. In 1943, he moved to Chicago. He lived with a relative for a short period of time while driving a truck and working in a factory by day and performing at night. Big Bill Brunzi, then one of the leading bluesmen in Chicago, had Muddy Waters open his shows in the rowdy clubs where Brunzi played. This gave Muddy Waters the opportunities to play in front of large, and I do mean large, audiences. In 1944, he bought his first electric guitar and then formed his first electric combo. He felt obliged to electrify his sound in Chicago because he said, when I went into the club, the first thing I wanted was an amplifier. Couldn't nobody hear you with an acoustic. His sound reflected the op- optimism of post-war African-Americans. Willie Dixon said that there was quite a few people around singing the blues, but most of them were singing all sad blues. Muddy Waters giving his blues a little pet. I love the voices that you do. <laughs> They're so good. They make me so happy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I came up with these voices, <laughs> Thank but I you did. For this. Learned, Thank you. <laughs> but Muddy, along with his former harmonica player, Little Walter Jacobs, and recent Southern transplant, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters reigned over the early 1950s Chicago blues scene, his band becoming a proven ground for some of the city's best blues talents. Now, Muddy Waters died in his sleep from heart failure at his home in Westmont, Illinois, on April 30th, 1983, from cancer-related complications. He was pronounced dead at the age of 70. The remains of the cabin, though, on Stovall Plantation, where he lived in his youth, are now at the Delta Blues Museum in Clarksdale, Mississippi. I'm going to go there. Muddy Waters has literally left a legacy in his wake. Even the British band, the Rolling Stones, named themselves after the 1950 song, Rolling Stone, by Waters himself. He influenced people like Clapton, ACDC, Jimi Hendrix, who said the first time the, he ever, the first guitar player he was aware of was Muddy Waters. He said he first heard him as a little boy and it scared him to death. And people today call Jimi Hendrix also a great influence on guitar as it is. He even, even Led Zeppelin, you know, a whole lot of love, that Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that whole lot of love is based off of You Need Love, one of Muddy Waters' hits. Fellow blues musician B.B. King, and I know you all know B.B. King, 
Mm-hmm, Fellow better. blues musician B.B. King told Guitar World magazine, it's going to be years and years before most people realize how greatly he contributed to American music. I gotta say, listening to all the stuff about Muddy Waters, like, no one can really see it, but it makes me so happy. <laughs> I love it. I love all the influence. It's so great. Word, and it's like, and I don't have a happy probe in my head like in uh, Invader Zim. <laughs> <laughs> no, like literally uh, having to do all this research. And mind you, we chose four on a whim. Mm-hmm. Like, I knew some of them because I would see random videos that would pop on, on Facebook. And I'm like, I've never heard of this person in my life. Google, you're <laughs> my best friend. Jeannie, <laughs> tell me about these people. <laughs> and then I'm reading it. I'm reading it, and I'm just like, how, Michelle, how did you not know about these people? <laughs> like, and then I, would, then I looked up their music, and I'm just sitting there, sitting cross-legged on my bed with YouTube on my TV, and I'm just like, but like shiver me timbers all over my skin. I'm just like, wow. Goosebumps. Like legitimately goosebumps. But I'm going to end mine and transfer this right back over to Christine. Christine, who's your last pick? All right. Well, my last pick is not an American artist. She is a Cape Verdean artist. And I know that I have to be very careful <laughs> to give the right information. Otherwise, my family will 1,000% roast me. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I can always picture your mama just mm-hmm. giving you that look and your daddy just Why shaking his head. Why did you do that? <laughs> that's not right. That was, that's her mom's voice, <laughs> if y'all wondering. But um, no, so who is it? Her name is Cesaria Evora. Wait, say that again. Cesaria Evora. Ooh, okay, sorry, I had to. Just the rolls, okay. Yeah. All right, go ahead, Christine. Okay, so Cesaria was born in August of uh, 1941. She was born on San Vicente, which is an island on uh, Cape Verde Islands. It's one of the Cape Verde Islands. Her father was a part-time musician, and when she was seven, he died. And as one of six kids, because you know us Cape Verdeans love big families, I mean from personal experience and knowing all the Cape Verdeans that live in Boston and Rhode Island and Jersey even, that we're everywhere. We're everywhere and nowhere. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, so she had a big family. She was one of six. And, you know, her mother had to try and raise her and her siblings alone. And it just wasn't happening. So Cesaria was put up for adoption. Um, At 16 years old, she started singing, though. She started singing in Sailor's Taverns. And this was due to the influence of a friend of hers. She kept singing around and around, and eventually she became international, believe it or not. She released a commercial over in France in 1988. Um, She also released her self-titled album, Cesaria. But that was before all of the uh, commercials things that were happening over in France. But upon the release of Cesaria, you know, it got a little bit of attention, you know. But later on in 1995, it was actually nominated for a Grammy. That's amazing. I was way too young to really be aware of anything that was happening at this time, let alone Cesaria Avoda winning, or not really, not winning, but being nominated for a Grammy. But you know, uh, it, later on in 2006, she went to Italy because, of course, we international, baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so she went to Italy. She met with a producer who adapted her songs in Italian, which is impressive. She was also an ambassador of the United Nations World Food Program because altruism is a true thing for a lot of people then surprisingly enough she was made a knightess of the french legion of honor she was the first cape verdean to do so she's just impressing 
me left and right. And I'm sure she's probably impressing some of you. And I think that my family may be a little bit impressed of my knowledge of her. <laughs> Thank you, Internet, for my education. <laughs> we need this back in our earlier days. Yes. Oh, the tests I would not have taken. <laughs> anyway, her songs were about Kid Brody, particularly about their isolation, their history of isolation, the slave trade that went on there. You know, our national language is Criolo, and Criolo is a dialect of Portuguese. And the Portuguese are former colonizers <laughs> of so us. <laughs> so wait, can you say, what was the, your national language called again? Criolo. But it's not the same, just to clarify to people, it's not the same as the Haitian language, which no. is, exactly. It's but they do the sound same. very similar. They sound similar. The name of the languages sound similar is what I'm saying. Not, yes. Not the languages. I'm just making sure that we're clarifying that she's not saying Haitian Creole. Yes. Now, I mean, I can go over a short difference between Haitian Creole and um, Cape Verdean Creole. Creole. Well, Haitian Creole is primarily French, and Cape Verdean Creole is primarily Portuguese. We also have elements of Spanish and a little bit of French in our language. Uh, and I like to describe it as putting all of those languages together in a blender and seeing what happens. I personally think that it's a beautiful language. And a lot of there, there are a lot of different dialects, a lot of different accents and way that certain words are accentuated in different parts of different islands. So, yeah. Thank you, Christine, for the clarification. Just wanted to make sure. And hey, I learned again something new. So <laughs> continue where you said she was what? What I said was that her songs, I was talking about her songs. They talk about the islands. They talk about her country, the country that she loves. Uh, there's a song called Sodad, which literally translates to missing or missing you, missing something. These songs deeply resonate with me personally. I mean, through personal experience, through growing up and listening to it and just watching my grandmother dance to it and dancing with her and seeing my family. It's, it's a deeply beautiful song to me. And not only that, but I believe that Brockton High School, one of their graduating classes in the last few years, covered this song. I was amazed. I loved it. I actually think that this was two years ago. Good on you, Brockton. Anyway, back to her life, or death, rather. She died in 2011. She was 70, and she was living in her childhood home. Her death was from respiratory failure and hypertension. That's not all that surprising because we use a lot of salt in our food, but it's always delicious. Um, and, yeah, so... Not only that, but another impressive fact, before mm -hmm. she died, obviously, she was put on the Cape Verdean currency called Shkud. I don't think that I know of any musicians, at least Cape Verdean or American, that are on currency. So you go, Cesaria. Rest in peace. You great. You always going to be great. <laughs> when I like notice she always sounds like so perky when she mentions her death and I'm just like what kind of psychotic no. I mean I mean oh you I'm go, not perky um, when I'm mentioning her death I mean her death was of course <laughs> sad but you know her life is what made her life is what made her legacy I get it <laughs> Still sound quirky. Who <laughs> 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 is that? Um, it is my go. So my final pick, and by no means is the fact that she is the last one that I'm going to be speaking of. That th does in no way, shape, or me form mean that she is like the least noteworthy of them. No, no, she. Woo, it, girl, boys, Who is it? men, Who women. Is it? Everybody in between, <laughs> this is Sister Rosetta Thorpe, Ooh. a.k.a. Rosetta Newbin. Um, now, Miss Thorpe 
was an American singer-songwriter and guitarist and recording artist born March 20th, 1915. She was born in Cotton Plant, Arkansas to Katie Bell Lieben and Willis Atkins, who were both cotton pickers as well as musicians. You notice how our last two musicians had parents who were also musicians. Um, it runs in the family. Yeah. <laughs> Encouraged by her mother, Tharp began singing and playing the guitar as Little Rosetta Newbin at the age of four and was cited as a musical prodigy. Hell but yeah. like we were just saying, it ran in the family. Hell I don't yeah. know what I, Ah, uh, <laughs> me and my whole family tone deaf. Yeah, I'm talking to you, <laughs> sis. <laughs> but she attained popularity in the 1930s and 1940s with her gospel recordings, characterized by a unique mixture of spiritual lyrics and rhythmic accompaniment that was a precursor of rock and roll. She was the first great recording star of gospel music and among the first gospel musicians to appeal to rhythm and blues and rock and roll audiences. All the gospel and R&B and rock and roll, yeah! Later being referred to as the original soul sister and the godmother of rock and roll. Whoa. Like, do you see who I see is on this list? Willing to cross the line between sacred and secular by performing her music of light in the darkness at nightclubs and concert halls with big bands behind her, Tharp pushed spiritual music into the mainstream and helped pioneer the rise of pop gospel beginning in 1938 with the recording Rock Me and with her 1939 hit This Train. Her unique music left a lasting mark on more conventional gospel artists such as Ira Tucker Sr. of the Dixie Hummingbirds. While she offended some conservative churchgoers with her forays into the pop world, she never left gospel music. Tharp was a pioneer in her guitar technique. She was among the first popular recording artists to use heavy distortion yes. on her electric guitar yes. pre Saging the rise of electric blues. Her guitar playing technique had a profound influence on the development of British blues in the 1960s. Tharp's performances were curtailed by a stroke in 1970, after which one of her legs was amputated as a result of complications from her diabetes. On October 9th, 1973, the eve of a scheduled recording session, she died in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as a result of another stroke. Damn, all these musicians have heart conditions. It's almost like they give so much of themselves that after a while their heart just gives out. But you know, that's that's some don't don't mind my wordsmithing over here. Of course that's not the reasoning, it just feels like that. <laughs> but <laughs> um, she was buried in an unmarked grave in Northwood Cemetery in Philadelphia. But since then, a marker has been placed on the grave. Tharp's 1944 release, Down by the Riverside, was selected for the National Recording Registry of the U.S. Library of Congress in 2004, which noted that it captures her spirited guitar playing and unique vocal style, demonstrating clearly her influence on early rhythm and blues performers and cited her influence on many gospel, jazz, and rock artists. Her 1945 hit, Stranger Things Happening Every Day, recorded in late 1944, featured Tharp's vocals and electric guitar with Sammy Price on piano, bass, and drums. It was the first gospel record to cross over, hitting number two on the Billboard Race Records chart. The term then used for what we later became, we later became the R&B chart in April 1945. The recording has been cited as precursor of rock and roll. On December 13, 2017, Tharp was chosen for induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as an early influencer. I'm glad that she was put in as an early influence because she should have been put in 
way sooner. <laughs> I mean, better now better than, right ever, than right? ever. Yeah, you're right. She you're right. inspired and was favorited by many great talents like Little Richard, Johnny Cash, Chuck Berry. Hear this name again. Elvis Presley, Aretha Franklin, Tina Turner. The list just goes on. Honestly, if you haven't heard anything by her, I urge you to look up her work and hear it for yourself. So that's just it. Like, like honestly, if you have a chance, just look up her life. It's you so much more than what I just told you. <laughs> <laughs> Honorary mention. Honorary mention. <laughs> yeah. My honorary mention is going out to Aretha Franklin because for some reason I had Aretha on my mind. When I was talking about Anita Baker, I had to re-record this like five times because I kept saying Aretha. <laughs> I got it on what? recording. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love both of them, but my brain really had to pick one. <laughs> and my honorary mention is Miss Nina Simone. Nina Simone. Uh, I know y'all know Nina Simone. Like, she, that woman can be, like, on the other side of the stage. The mic could be all the way down there, and this woman will project her voice. Do you feel so, like, and the thing, the sound effects, uh, just, <laughs> yes, just on her very much. Like, like, the only reason she wasn't on the list because she's already known on, like, so many people have borrowed mm -hmm. from her, so many people have covered her, like, she's already known, but Miss Nina Simone, just, yes, that is my honorary mention. Yeah. Okay. Hey, y'all, I know that we've thrown a lot <laughs> at you, like, a lot of information, you know, and your brains are probably, like, mush right now, like, wow, we really had a history lesson oh on oh all of these amazing musicians <laughs> who, should who we start influenced at black first? history. Yeah, like, you don't know where to start, but you know what? It's cool. That's fine. You know, like there, for each was a compromise, though. It yes. was a compromise. I came in saying six. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, maybe more. Maybe more. Because six is a lot. Six is you a know lot. what? Our first technical episode was only a couple minutes. So we were yeah. just giving you guys a little something, something extra. Yeah. Now, so we shall close out here and bid you, our Nerdworthians, adieu. And remember, when words fail, music. Noteworthy is brought to you by CC Black Girl Production. Athena, say bye. Bye. <laughs>